Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. All right, so just a brief recap. Um, For those who don't know you, my name is Brian, and don't let this beard fool you that I'm growing. Uh, I'm not Brian Curdy. You guys laugh. Um, Anyhow, you were, yeah. Uh, Last week, we finished up chapter one. So we spent three weeks on chapter one, and uh, we started out talking about Paul's authority, where his authority came from. It didn't come from man, it came from God. And Paul laid out just a plain and simple gospel. Uh, The next week, uh, Scott discussed how God's given us that one gospel and believers should guard it against false teaching. And then last week, Sean uh, wrapped up chapter one, talking about Paul's testimony and illustrating how the grace of God through the gospel of God transforms the people of God for the glory of God. Lots of G's in there. And so now we've wrapped up chapter one, we're gonna delve into chapter two as Paul shares how he guarded the gospel and we're gonna cover all of chapter two today. And our Text today will be focusing primarily on justification. Uh, title for today is Justified by Faith, Not by Man. Um, and when I say justification, I'm talking about our standing with God. And we know there's two certain things in life. What are they? Death and taxes. That's right. Um, no, this is not a lesson about taxes. We're going to be talking about death. The Bible says it's appointed to man to die once, and then what? The judgment, right? So every person here is going to stand before an almighty God, that creator that I just prayed about that created this beautiful world that we live in, an all-powerful God. We're going to stand in front of him. And inside, we all want to know what's going to be the result, right? That's a question that we all have pending in our hearts is when I stand before God, what's he gonna pronounce over me? What's he gonna say? So the idea of our standing is the determination, do we stand guilty or do we stand innocent? What is God gonna say? So we're all familiar with the American legal system. And in that system, when one stands accused, a jury will deliberate and make a determination of whether a person is guilty or not guilty. Now, having been in that situation myself, I've had the privilege of actually sitting there when a jury is pronounced guilt or not guilt. And I've also had the privilege of being there when someone's pronounced not guilty. And I can tell you by just how that person reacts, there is a weight lifted off of them like you cannot believe. They were facing many times 20 30 years in jail, and a jury has just now said, you're not guilty. And so as you can imagine, it's a freeing, liberating feeling. My goodness, a jury has just said that I'm not guilty. But we know that as we 
find not guilty doesn't necessarily mean innocent. Um, so we all have what I would say is a rap sheet. So I want to introduce you to Chibs. Um, Chibs is not from around here. No, he's not somebody that I uh, know. I tried to find somebody I didn't know. But Chibs has a rap sheet there. And uh, sometimes when we think of what a person looks like when they're guilty of something or someone who's been stood accused, you think of Chibs, right? You think of somebody who's gone out and done some serious stuff like him. He, uh, he was charged with possession of illegal weapons, drug trafficking, extortion, pretty serious stuff, right? So maybe, maybe you say, hey, well, look, I obey all the rules. I'm, I'm not a criminal. I've never done anything like Chibs here. I'm not, I'm not that guy. But we all know that our rap sheet probably looks more like this. To God, it's all the same. It's no better or worse than Chibs in God's eyes. We all fall short of the glory of God. And I would gather that we'd all agree one of those things that's up there, maybe all of those things up there, have at one point in time in our life applied to us. <clears throat> but we know that when you place your faith in Christ, repent of your sins, God, who is rich in mercy and His grace, makes us alive in Christ and imputes us with Christ's righteousness. And He pronounces over us that we are acquitted. So this, for those who are in Christ, this is what that former rap sheet looks like. That's what it looks like. He sees Jesus Christ. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about justification. We're no longer condemned. We no longer stand in condemnation. So that standing is what is the issue in chapter 2 of Galatians. So we're going to break it down uh, into two sections. And I've entitled this The Tale of Two Cities because there's going to be one meeting that's going to be the first half of Galatians 2. It's going to be meeting one in Jerusalem. And then the second meeting is meeting two that occurs in Antioch and is the second half of Galatians. And so this is a unique opportunity that Paul gives us to be a spectator into two of the earliest meetings of the early church leaders as they discuss and frankly debate and confront the gospel and the truth of the gospel. So if you ever want to be a fly on the wall at a deacon's meeting, not that anybody probably does, but if you ever want to be a fly on the wall at a deacon's meeting, here's your chance. Uh, so Paul's going to give us that inside scoop of what's happening and when he interacts with the other leaders of the church. And there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake in these two meetings, as we'll find out. We'll see in Jerusalem unity, wisdom, and correct belief in the gospel. And then we'll see in Antioch disunity, unbelief, and loving correction leading someone back to correct belief about the gospel. So it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. <clears throat> our main idea today is our justification is through faith alone and Christ alone and cannot be achieved.
through man's approval or our own efforts. So let's read about the first meeting in Jerusalem, and then we'll go, uh, go forward. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks and spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the un- excuse me, to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we would continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So before we delve into the meeting, let's remember where Paul is coming from and how he's going into these meetings. So Paul's not coming, and I'm not talking geographically, I'm talking mentally, as he's coming into this meeting, we know that he's not wavering. He's not unsure about the gospel. Uh, He's not unsure where he stood on the gospel. We recall reading in uh, the first verse of chapter 1 in Galatians that Paul was not sent by man. He was not given his gospel by man. He was given his gospel by Jesus Christ. This was a revelation from God. It was not man who shaped and formed Paul's understanding of the gospel. And again, in chapter 1, verse 8, Scott talked about this, but he reiterates that there's no other gospel other than faith in the finished work of Christ that should be followed. Anything else is a false gospel. So he uses some strong language here, even in verse 8, that says anyone who would teach anything different than the gospel he shared with Galatians in chapter 1 should be accursed. So when Paul goes into this meeting, he approaches this meeting with confidence that he has the truth with him when he goes. So we see that when he's coming into this meeting, at first blush when you read that he comes and says that I'm running, uh, excuse me, I'm I'm looking to see that I'm running and had not been running my race in vain, it appears as though he's looking for these pillars of the church to affirm the gospel he's preaching. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not going to seek their approval or their confirmation of what he was preaching with solid doctrine, but he was there to protect the gospel. He was not unsure of whether he had the true gospel or that he understood correct uh, correct doctrine, 
He wanted to ensure that he guarded the gospel. His concern here is that he would protect it from those who would undermine his mission and calling by preaching a false gospel that said you needed faith in something other than Jesus in order to be saved. The people that he was going to were adding to the gospel message. And what's clear here is that Paul was willing to confront anyone, no matter who they were, whatever their stature, with the truth of the gospel, because Paul had no fear of man. So in verse 6, we see that as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me because God shows no favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Paul didn't find man's position, their qualifications to be of any importance to him. I mean, he's talking about Peter, James, and John. These are pillars of the church. Yet, he recognized his position, and that's what he placed his confidence in. His standing didn't come from man. His justification and his approval came directly from God, not from Peter, James, and John. So Paul's not being disrespectful here. He's simply stating a fact. He wasn't going to give weight or importance to men uh, more than a glorious God. It's God who gave him the gospel, and Paul was going to be allegiant to that, not to man. We know Paul is a, also didn't place any confidence in the flesh. You know, who you were didn't make any difference to him. Um, what you believe, now, I, I think that's a different story to Paul. In Philippians 3, Paul just tells us a little bit of his resume, saying that if there's anyone that had confidence in who they were, their stature, that'd be me, and it would be in myself. He's sort of talking about, it's sort of silly talk, but he's saying, I have more reason to be confident in myself than any other man. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, and as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he basically says, if you want to compare man to man, just what using works, or you want to compare looking at the flesh, I'll stack up with any of you guys. But we know Paul says that he counted all that as rubbish. It was meaningless to him. All he cared about was his standing before God. So we wrap up the tale of the first city with a handshake agreement here. And we see that there's gospel unity. We know that Paul brought with him Titus, and that's significant because Titus was a Greek. Titus was uncircumcised. We know that about him. And we know that after this meeting, Titus was accepted. He was approved by these pillars as one who had the same standing as them. It confirmed to Paul that they would preach the same gospel that he would preach and that they wouldn't undermine it. And we know that a little yeast can leaven the whole lump, right? So a little false teaching, if it started to delve into what was going on with what Paul was preaching over here, if if over here they were preaching in another city that you had to obey legalistic rules and you had to abide by circumcision, you had to follow all the festivals, and that 
would help justify you. We know that, that Paul looked at that as something that would undermine his mission. So they left this meeting in unity, recognizing they each had their own calling, and they left with a handshake. So it was the best of times. Now the gospel was going to be proclaimed. They all agreed, and they're all going forward. They all had their own mission. Paul to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews. So now we move on to the meeting in Antioch. Now, Antioch in Syria is where this is taking place, and we know, uh, based on what we read in Acts, that this is, this is actually the church and, and the location where believers are first called Christians. Um, it's a body of believers uh, that are made up both of Jews and Gentiles. So, let's read what happened there. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged in the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So I want to start out in verse 11 through 13 and talk a little bit about Peter. Um, This should give us pause. Uh, So Peter is one of the twelve, right? He's one of the first ones that Jesus chose to walk with him as his disciple. And we know that he walked with Jesus for three years in Jesus' ministry. I mean, can you imagine the opportunity that you had to walk with Jesus, the Son of God, for three years? He's the first one who recognized Jesus as the Christ. If you recall, he says that you're the Christ. And upon that truth, upon that, God says he'll build his church. He saw him in all his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. He was one of the three that went up with Jesus and saw him glorified, standing there. He saw him crucified. And he saw him rise again and met him. He saw the hands. He saw the holes. 
We know he's a man who was filled with the Spirit. He was there at Pentecost. In fact, after he was filled with the Spirit, he became bold and got up and preached the gospel, and 3,000 people came to know Christ on one single message. That's pretty powerful. And history tells us that Peter, because of his faith, died for Christ. History says he was crucified upside down because he didn't think himself worthy of being crucified like his Savior. So you would say to yourself, look, this man had every single opportunity you could think of. And in fact, if you think about Peter, Jesus came to him and restored Peter, right? He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I love you, Lord. You know I love you. And the point of talking about Peter's resume is to say, no one's immune from what happened to Peter. No one's immune. <clears throat> Paul tells us that in Antioch, he confronted Peter, who, despite knowing the truth, had chosen to live differently among the Gentiles. It says that Peter used to, to, to eat among the Gentiles. And if you recall, Peter was actually was given a vision about this and, and went to Cornelius' home and was, saw the, 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 the table of food that was placed out in front of him that you could eat uh, things that normally Jews couldn't eat. He knew this. He was actually given a revelation by God about this. But in this particular instance, we see that Peter was afraid of man. It says that he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. And the reason was because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Have you ever gone to a cafeteria whenever you're in high school? And can you imagine going to a cafeteria and walking in and all your friends are sort of sitting around a table. And when you walk in, they do this. They just turn their back on you. And you're going to put your, you're going to go put your tray down. You're going to sit, but all your friends turn their back on you. You'd say, well, what in the world? What, what's going on here? I mean, that would be pretty, pretty unloving. But that's exactly what Peter was choosing to do. He's saying, I'm not even going to be willing to eat with you, even though you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've chosen to reject you and push you out and treat you differently than other people because the fear that he had of the circumcision group was so great to him. He had placed that fear of man or the need for approval of man higher than the gospel. So we see that what had happened here is that Peter had forgotten his justification and that his standing with God was not based on the approval of man, but his standing with God was based upon his approval by God. So we move on to Paul's loving confrontation with Peter. And what I would say here is this, this isn't obvious that this is loving right off the bat, but confrontation can be loving, right? Um, if you see someone or you see a brother or sister who is doing something that, that you don't believe is in line with the gospel, going to them, talking to them, and we talked about this in, in, in dis, uh, discipline, 
It's loving to go and correct the brother. But that's how Peter acts here. He's, he sees the fruit of what Peter's believing, and he confronts it. He goes to the heart of what Peter is forgetting. He's forgetting his standing with God, and the Gentiles standing with God is not based on what they do, but by their faith. He forgets that he doesn't need man's approval anymore, and Paul reminds him that his standing before God frees him from having to please man and seek their approval. He reminds them, him of his unbelief and in the work of Christ being sufficient for his personal approval with God. That doesn't seem like an obvious connection to me. Like, seeing someone act the way Peter would be acting towards the Gentiles, I don't know that my lead-in would be justification. And my lead-in might be say, hey, dude, you know that God tells us that we're supposed to love others as ourselves. I mean, you're not loving towards them. That might be the way to talk to them. But that's not the way Paul sees it. Paul actually goes to much deeper in the root process here. Paul's going beyond the way he's not he's acting and saying you're not acting loving. He goes deeper. He goes deeper into Peter's not remembering. He's forgetting his justification. He's forgetting what justification means. <clears throat> Paul isn't saying that Peter isn't still justified. But he's calling him to remember that how he lives and acts is no longer based on rules or regulations, but upon the finished work of Christ. So I want to talk a little bit about justification. Um, and I'm going to be referencing uh, Dane Orland's book, Deeper. But in his book, Deeper, in chapter 5, Acquittal, Dane Orland talks about the idea that justification is outside in and that we begin to lose it when we make it inside out. And, and what I mean by that is it's outside in because we're justified by giving, by giving a right standing with God that's wholly outside of ourselves. It's not based on anything we do. It's outside. It's given to us by God. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve it. So this is simply contrary to what we see around us in almost everything that we encounter. Normally, it's our performance that dictates whether or not we're convicted or we consider ourselves acquitted. But we've been given the gift of acquittal outside of ourselves. And that gift of righteousness is not because of what we've done on the inside, but the work of Christ and what he did on the cross. Sanctification, which is our growth and godliness, works in an inverse way or in an opposite way than justification. Sanctification has to do with how we live and our personal holiness which results from the gospel. But this is an internal change, not based on outward external, uh, external rule following, but it's based on a change in our hearts. So it's not a, a conformance to a set of rules, but it's, it's the outward expression or the acts that flow from what has happened in our hearts. If it's anything else and it's just rule following, or if it's just saying, I'm going to do all these things and do it right, but there hasn't been a change in the heart. In 2 Timothy 3.5, it talks about how this is an appearance of having godliness, but having zero power, no power, because all we're doing is conforming to, to, to the world's expectations of what a Christian should look like. 
but not actually having a heart change on the inside that drives our sanctification. So justification is what drives sanctification. So the outside in drives the inside out. So what you believe about your justification will determine and drive your sanctification. It's that root-to-fruit concept. It's, it's the thing that we put up on the screen at the beginning of every lesson, that gospel roots lead to gospel fruit. So if you're not believing you're justified and going back to that time and time and again and reminding yourself that you don't need to perform, you don't need to seek man's approval, then you'll feel shackled and bogged down by the chains of feeling you need to prove yourself to others, sometimes prove yourself to yourself. I mean, we can be our own worst critics, right? Don't we daily sometimes, and I'll talk about myself here, many times I measure myself based on how I perform that day. And so sometimes I can be my own worst critic. I can feel like a failure at the end of the day. But that's not what I should be telling myself. That's, that's an accuser that's telling me that you're a failure. <clears throat> so the, the natural response can be to slide back into the temptation to adhere to rules and regulations to try to feel justified. In other words, in our heart to try to feel that we're worthy, that, to try to feel as though that we are in right standing with God. God, by virtue of the stuff that we would do as far as rule following and doing all these things. But look at me. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Look at my involvement in this group. Look at my involvement in this activity. Look at my involvement in this program. Those things are not going to drive your sanctification. Those things are not going to satisfy the heart issues. We walk now in the Spirit. And it's the Spirit who directs us in those paths of righteousness. So, the last part of chapter 2, Paul talks about that that real justification is what results in real living. Our tendency to look within, to see whether we're in right standing with God, leads us to look to our performance to confirm our justification. And this is what Paul means when he says we rebuild what we tore down. By going back to looking to our performance as the basis for our justification, we're rebuilding something that Jesus nullified. We nullify the grace of God by doing that. And now we are measuring our standing not based on what Christ did, but what we're doing. So the fear tends to be that if we don't have rules and we don't have things that people must follow, then people can just abuse that lack of rules and go on sinning, suggesting that Christ is fine with that. That's when he says Christ is a minister of sin? Of course not. We know that's not the case. But we know that Christ frees us to walk a life in accordance with our justification and a life accordance to the Spirit. We're not going to walk in ways to please ourselves or to abuse the, abuse the grace given to us. We're now free to live a, a righteous life in accordance with the Spirit, not one based on rule following. It's a life based on faith powered by the Holy Spirit. For the believer, 
Many times we think of justification as sort of a one-time act. That's what happened when I got saved. I'm justified. But the key here is that it, every day we need to remind ourselves that we stand not guilty because of Christ's work and the freeing power of that truth drives our sanctification daily. It's vital to living a Christian life to be reminded of the beauty of the gospel and his saving grace. Which brings me to my final point. We must remind ourselves and others that we are justified by faith alone, so we need not seek man's approval or need to perform. So often we forget it. So it's easy to forget it. If a man like Peter can forget it, we can forget it. The way that we continue to grow in Christ is coming back time and time and again to remind ourselves and others of the doctrine of justification. Our natural human condition is to creep back into seeking man's approval. It's our, in our DNA. When we're kids, we want to get our parents' approval or our siblings' approval. When we become adults, we want to get our boss's approval or our wife's approval or our husband's approval. Our natural DNA leads us to seek man's approval and affirmation, but we have been freed from that. We don't need to live there. We can live in the knowledge that we have been justified and acquitted by Christ's work. I gave a little legal analogy in the beginning, but the beauty of Christ is that we have an advocate with the Father. Like, He's the best defense attorney ever, right? We stand acquitted because a defense attorney who normally argues on your behalf actually says, I'll take that punishment for my client. All his punishment put on me. All the wrath that he has deserving, I'll take it all. And he did. And that is what we need to remind ourselves. I'll finish with uh, one quote from Ortland. Uh, he says it this way and deeper. We need to understand that justification is not a spark plug that ignites the engine of the Christian life, but justification is an engine that powers it all along the way. It's not just a one-time event. It's a thing to go back to every single day, every single day. If you feel yourself creeping back into legalism, remind yourself of your justification. If you see yourself saying, I'm fearful of man right now, go back to your justification. If you see yourself feeling in despair because you feel like a failure, go back to your justification. You stand innocent before a holy God because of the work of Christ. Amen?